It's overtime. We're past the 90th minute mark, anxiously waiting for a goal, for a play, for something to occur, but as the whistle rings in our ears and the referee calls the match to a close, the ball stops rolling, the curtains are drawn, the spectacle ends, and we move on. There will always be another final some other day, but what if I told you that there's more? Every football club has a storied past, rusted trophies and glories of yesteryear, yet that's not the story I want to tell. This isn't a story of heroes or villains, of last-minute goals and miraculous turnarounds. This is Undertime, the story of First Division soccer in fascist Spain. Oh yes, I know her, this woman, I know her. She came by train, a very long train. She traveled for many days and for many nights, and this woman woke in the night and she was alone, and she looked around her, and she began running down the hallways of the train from one car to another, and she was alone. She looked for the ticket taker, the trainman, an employee, a hobo traveling hidden under the seat, and she was alone. And she asked the darkness, and she was alone. And she asked who the conductor was who was moving this horrible train, and no one answered her, because she was alone. Because she was alone. This poem you just heard belongs to Leopoldo Panero an infamous Spanish poet from war-torn Spain. He described Spain as a desolate train with no discernible destiny or destination, which fits this show quite aptly. Very rarely do we realize where we end up in life, let alone the reasons why. So, let's figure out where we're heading. I'm as much as a passenger in this ghost train as you are, my friend. This train stops at every major station, Barcelona, Madrid, Bilbao, Sevilla, and many more. Hopefully you'll enjoy this solitary ride as much as I do. Hey. Hi there. Glad to see you back. We're still a bit far away from Barcelona. Let's catch up and put a few things into context. Plus, I didn't bring any cards to pass the time, so what else are we to do? By the nature of this show, and well, history as a whole, we're going to be taking some rather unsavory detours and turns. This isn't about politics, about taking sides or assigning right and wrong. If history has taught us anything, is that it's ruthless, no matter what side you end up on. And the Civil War was all about sides, about finding yourself on the wrong side of the line, the ideological line, the line between Republicans and Nationalists, the line between brothers at arms and brothers at war. The line, the bloody line, the line between holding the gun and facing the firing squad. If I'm going to do this justice, then a prelude or preface of sorts is necessary. And I know, you probably didn't sign up for a heavy-handed history lesson, but we can't really understand the stories behind Spanish soccer without understanding how we got here first. I'll keep it as brief as I can, yet there are going to be parts that I cannot omit. This is no train taking the scenic route, my friend. We're undressing Spain, ugly parts and all. The origins of the Civil War can be traced back to the 19th century, but I'm not going to bore you with all the details, so you don't really have to worry about that right now. We've only got so much time before we get to Barcelona. As far as you're concerned, Spain was quite the mess. The beginning of the century saw Napoleon wreak havoc across Spain, which then reunited and fragmented itself after a dozen or so dethronings and coups. Little agrarian Spain was shifting in constant political and ideological flux. There was even a short-lived republic, the first of its kind, before being swiftly squashed by the monarchy. The monarchy was later replaced by military autocrats, Primo de Rivera being one of the more famous ones, a decade or so before the Civil War began. Unrest and hunger were the daily bread of the Spaniards. Fast forward to 1931. King Alfonso XIII holds a general election, and Spain has decided. 
They are to be a republic once more, for the second time in their history. The Second Spanish Republic is born on the 14th of August and is baptized through its constitution on December 9th, saying goodbye to the constitutional monarchy of yore. The early years of the Republic were tumultuous to say the least, and the Republic itself did not last very long as you may have surmised. This Republic was led by Niceto Alcalá Zamora, and his government was composed of a Republican and Socialist coalition. It should be noted that Spain at the time, and up to this day, uses a multi-party parliamentary system, so coalitions, generally speaking, are necessary to form a majority in Parliament, and therefore, a government. These two parties had quite distinct goals. The Conservatives believed removing the monarchy was enough, the Radical Socialists wanted wider reforms. And the reforms were as controversial as it gets. Redistribution of wealth, eight-hour workdays, tenure for farmers. To say the landlords and wealthy aristocrats were alienated by this government would be an understatement. All of these reforms required adept and practical governance in localities and municipalities across all of Spain, so they were either implemented poorly or not at all. The military was reorganized, forcing officers into early retirement or relocation. These grievances would not be forgotten. Many of these officers would come back to fight against the Republic in the Civil War. The Catholic Church was not spared either. The new constitution curbed many of their previously held powers. In essence, this version of Spain was divorcing the church, separating church and state. And well, anyone who has an ex knows things can turn sour quite quickly. All special rights held by the church were removed. This government was proclaiming religious freedom for all. Monks and nuns could no longer be teachers. The republic was to regulate church properties and funds. Christian iconography was to be removed from schools. They even legalized divorce. You can sort of see now who was beginning to get miffed with the Republic, and these groups were no underdogs. They held considerable power despite these changes. The Catholic Church still influenced the judiciary and the press. Many Spaniards were still devout Catholics. Landowners considered this government communist and godless. And finally, the military had many fascists within their ranks. This government was not making its constituents happy, and it kept alienating those who held power. Zamora had no other alternative than to resign. The new prime minister, Manuel Azaña, took his place and inherited a broken coalition. He now had to depend fully on the socialists as the conservatives felt they had no place in this government. Agrarian reforms caused agricultural strikes that had to be put down by force. Anti-clerical violence sparked revolts and the government turning a blind eye to this issue only confirmed what the Catholics already presupposed, that this government was persecuting Christians. There was an unsuccessful coup organized by General José Sanjurjo. Prominent military leaders were tried and exiled to the colonies, including generals that would later lead the anti-republican forces in the Civil War. As the political left became more fractured and radicalized, the right became increasingly unified. Elections in 1933 saw an overwhelming victory by the CEDA political party, the Spanish Confederation of the Autonomous Right, which included several fascist members. What followed is described as the two black years, Bienio Negro. Radicals became more and more aggressive and violent. Conservatives turned to paramilitary and vigilante forces to exert their power. The times were ripe with assassinations, political violence, strikes, and religious arson. Churches were sacked and burnt. Members of the church were murdered or beaten. Anarchist movements morphed into strikes and protests. The left was in shambles as party members resigned, and the cabinet was constantly changing faces. In essence, there was a government within a government, with different factions either following or undermining directives and reforms. The region of Catalonia even declared independence during a coal miner's strike in Asturias, which was swiftly crushed by Republican forces at the hand of Francisco Franco. Successionist leaders were arrested and Catalonia's autonomy was suspended. Azaña was leading a minority government in parliament now, 
which forced new elections in 1936. The Frente Popular, a leftist coalition, barely won, which sparked violence and reprisals. Conservatives gave up completely on going through the legal channels and gifted their campaign funds to Emilio Mola, the head conspirator behind the Civil War. Communists began to rise in social institutions, scaring the middle class. Several generals decided this was enough. The government had to be replaced. In July of 1936, General Francisco Franco leads a revolt in the colony of Morocco, dividing Spain in two camps, the Republicans and the Nationalists. The coup was successful in Morocco, Pamplona, Burgos, Zaragoza, Valladolid, Córdoba, and Sevilla. The major cities of Barcelona, Madrid, Valencia, Bilbao, and Málaga resisted the initial blow. The stage was set. Franco's forces overran Republican-controlled areas in central and northern Spain. In 1937, Franco consolidated his power with the Falange, the Spanish fascist party and military force. Many historians describe this period as a dress rehearsal for World War II, with fascist and communist forces acting as proxies in Spain. The nationalists were aided by Nazi Germany and fascist Italy. The USSR and the International Brigade of Volunteers aided the Republicans. By June of 1938, the nationalist force had cut the Republican territory in two, driving the front line up to the Mediterranean Sea. In January of 1939, Barcelona fell, and the rest of Catalonia followed suit. The next month, England and France recognized Franco as the legitimate leader of Spain. All peace negotiations with the Republicans fell to deaf ears. The 28th of March, 1939, the nationalists enter Madrid, officially ending the war. Up to a million lives were lost. Brothers, sisters, sons and daughters, and on their corpses, the longest standing fascist regime in European history was born. 36 years. 36 years. I know this is kind of hard to wrap your head around. And believe me, I had to gloss over many things to condense this historical crash course. I should note I have no skin in this game. I'm not here to convince anyone whether this regime was good or bad. Anyone who is not Spanish might be confused by this statement, but you have to understand that this wound has not healed. The scar is barely a scab. Spain recently exhumed Franco from his grave. All Spaniards have family that fought for both sides, and many remember the regime fondly. This will be the first, and well, last recap you'll get in regards to the war itself. After all, we came here to focus on the soccer side of things. Also, a brief notice, I will be using football and soccer interchangeably, effectively angering both sides, but <laughs> just the heads up. Las Anywho, it seems we finally arrived in Barcelona. Just in time, it's almost like I planned it or something. Let's leave this train behind and bask in the Mediterranean sun. This behemoth of a stadium behind me is Cap Nou, Football Club Barcelona's magnum opus. Construction finished in 1957, and it houses a whopping 99,354 seats. It's the largest stadium in Spain and Europe, and it's the third largest stadium in the world after the first May Stadium in North Korea and the Melbourne Cricket Ground in Australia. Not entirely sure if we should really count the North Korean one, but still. This might come as a surprise to most Americans, but soccer stadiums in Europe are not generally supersized Gillette-sponsored coliseums. A stadium between 40 and 60,000 spectators in Spain is considered quite large, to put things in perspective. At any given day, you might listen to the screams and hollers of culés, the nickname for Football Club Barcelona fans, emanating 90,000 strong from these walls. Actually, there it is right now. 
Barca, as it is colloquially known, is the fourth most valuable sports team in the world. They don't only specialize in football. They have basketball, rugby, and hockey among their active sports departments, just to name a few. And they're also the richest football club in the world, generating over 840 million euros annually. You'd be hard-pressed to find someone who doesn't know this club, or their players. They've had many important historical figures in their ranks, like Kubala, Maradona, and active legend, Messi. Yet these walls hold much more than 90,000-plus spectators. If anything, you would have a hard time fitting all their history here. And despite all their successes, prestige, and fame, Barca comes from much humbler origins. We don't even have to take a train there. We can just walk a few blocks down the street, along Travesera del Escorce. Where we stand right now, between the streets of Numancia, Vallespir, and Marques de Semmenat, was the previous stadium, Camp del Escorce. Between 1922 and 1957, this was the place to be if you wanted to see Barcelona play. This stadium at first held 22,000 fans, reaching its zenith at 60,000 strong after renovations in its later years. Many fond memories were had right here. Barcelona's first ever league trophy was won in this stadium. Three Spanish Cups, the national tournament nowadays known as the King's Cup, La Copa del Rey, were also won in Camp de los Corts. There are also bitter moments here. This stadium was closed for a total of three months after fans jeered at the Spanish anthem during Primo de Rivera's regime in 1925. The club president at the time was forced to resign, and he was exiled to Switzerland, his home country. That person was none other than Joan Gamper, the founder of the club, and he has quite the story to tell. Because Barcelona's story doesn't start here. While Camp de les Corts may not exist anymore, its 27,000 or so square meters of terrain now composed of gardens, public spaces, and homes, we need to travel a bit further back to reach Barcelona's inception. And it's just a quick subway ride away. Football Club Barcelona was founded by 11 individuals. However, it was Hans Max Gamper, known as Joan Gamper in his Catalan name, who got the ball rolling. It all started in 1899, with an advertisement placed in a newspaper, Los Deportes, where Joan Gamper was seeking interested parties in forming a football club. 11 people showed up at that gym, Gimnasio Sole, on the 29th of November. These were Walter Wilde, the first club director, Luis Dosso, Bartomeu Terradas, Otto Kunzel, Otto Meyer, Enrique Duval, Per Cabot, Josep Llobet, John Parsons, William Parsons, and Joan Camper. Their titular colors, red and blue, or blaugrana in Catalan, were worn in the year 1900 in a match against Hispania. As an amateur team, Barcelona was quick to establish itself as a dominant one, competing in the Campeonato de Catalunya, the Catalonian Championship, and the National Cup, the current Copa del Rey. In 1902, they won the first ever trophy for the club, the Copa Macaya. However, they lost the final of the King's Cup by 2-1 to Vizcaya, nowadays known as Athletic de Bilbao. However, it wasn't all smooth sailing in Barcelona's infancy. After a string of poor results and falling spectators and members, Barcelona entered a crisis in 1905. This crisis reached its highest point between 1907 and 1908, where the club only had 38 members left to its name. Joan Gamper stepped in, for the first time as club president. Taking the reins of the club, he managed to increase membership numbers, ensured good results, and financial solvency. Barcelona even won the Catalan championship under his tenure. With rising spectatorship and membership, he secured a stadium for the club, where they moved to in 1909, which segues perfectly onto our next stop. Let's hop off here and take a look at where Barcelona's name began. Where we stand right now, between the streets of Paris, Urgell, Villarroel and Londres was Camp del Carrer Industria, 
Stadium of Industry Street, a bit of a mouthful, which is what Paris Street used to be called. It was popularly known as La Escopidera and could house up to 8,000 spectators. Here is where the name Culé originated and still remains as a nickname for Barcelona fans around the world. As Barcelona established itself as a winning team in Catalonia and Spain, more and more fans flocked to the stadium every Sunday. It got to a point where the stadium would be so packed that even the last stands would be filmed to the brim, with people sitting right at the edge. Any passerby on the street would see a row of rear ends every Sunday, so they started calling fans by that which they saw. Cools. Cules. The early years of Barca, as they transitioned from an amateur to a professional club, were full of titles. Barcelona's first golden age, winning two King's Cups and three Pyrenees Cups, as well as dominating in the Catalonian Championships. But there's a distinct point of transition that came with John Gamper. Gamper would step in and step out of administrative roles in the club. He was club president for a total of five times. It was his final instance as club president that really cemented his place in Barcelona's history. He came to the presidency during the 1923-24 season to organize the 25th anniversary of Football Club Barcelona, or its Boda de Plata, Silver Wedding in Spanish. Barcelona had its highest membership at the time, over 11,000 members, and had already moved to Camp de les Corts. This is where the Primo de Rivera event occurred, where the Spanish anthem was jeered. And I know I mentioned this earlier in passing, but this really affected Joan Gamper, who was forced to abandon what had come to be his home and he was only allowed to return to Spain under strict supervision. He could have no association with the club. The Great Depression of 1929 left him penniless, and he shot himself on the 30th of July of 1930. It's kind of hard to understand or put into words precisely how much soccer matters in Spain. Sure, one can always dismiss it as nothing more than sport, a passing, fleeting pastime as a circus or the opiate of the masses, but it means so much more than that. I didn't mention Joan Gamper as a historical fact, or because he was the founder of the club. His tragic story says something about the human and cultural connection this stupid ball can give. Spain sees its shifting, complex and contradictory identities reflected on the pitch. And there's a reason why Barcelona's slogan is Mescun Club. More than a club, Barcelona transcends the sport it transcends ideology. It's a breathing, living entity like you and I. And nothing, nothing exemplifies this better than the sport itself during the lowest point of Spanish history. Franco's coup began on the 19th of July, 1939. All national soccer competitions were obviously halted, with very few exceptions. Yet, barely five days into the Civil War, sporting activities had already recommenced in the city of Barcelona. Tournaments for young swimmers and preparations for the Olympic rowing team were held on the 24th of July. The impact of the Civil War and the subsequent fascist regime has many facets for all sports, but more so for soccer. Football was used as a political and propagandistic tool. Soccer served to further messages of nationalism and at the same time subvert them with regional and secessionist ideologies. This is a complex beast we're dealing with. The beginning of the war was quite odd in Barcelona. Between the months of August and December of 1936, a total of 52 organized competitions were held for a variety of sports, 37 of which were for soccer. This early on in the war, soccer was used as a tool for morale and solidarity. This isn't mindless entertainment or purely a form of escapism. These events were characterized for their emotivity, for the anti-fascist sentiment as a war cry in defense of the legitimacy of the Republic. They served as charity events, as blood drives helping militias, or as a way to collect funds for the war effort or the fallen. 
There was even a parade culminating in a match between Fútbol Club Barcelona and Real Club Deportivo Español. A communique from the Federación Catalana de Fútbol, the Catalan Soccer Federation, urged clubs to organize at least one charitable event. This was done so unanimously. By the end of August, most institutions announced their intention to return to the regular competition calendar. At the end of the day, their main form of revenue were ticket sales. The Catalan Soccer Federation instituted price uniformity for all tickets, and 25% of all revenue would be destined to the war effort. Yet as the war progressed, the reality of the situation set in. Fútbol Club Barcelona went from 7,719 members in 1936 to just 3,000 by 1939. Real Club Deportivo Español began recruiting players under the age of 15 as this was below the age of conscription. The Comisariado de Educación Física y Deportes del Gobierno Catalán, the Commissary of Physical Education and Sports for the Catalan government, ordered the suspension of all sporting events in Catalonia after the incidents that occurred in the Real Club Deportivo Español and Barcelona match of November 21st, 1936. This was completely ignored due to syndicate pressures and concerns for the economic well-being of these institutions. During the war, there were even conferences regarding the state of the sport and the moral issues that might arise with maintaining this industry during the war times. Football was an active, lived experience, its use being part of even moralistic debates. During 1936 and 1937, most competitions had returned to relative normalcy, with some degrees of adaptation. In the later half of 1937, the regular calendar had been affected from increased militarization and military losses. About 150 players in Catalonian soccer had either been mobilized or were MIA. Even so, tournaments were still being held. The Liga Mediterránea, a parallel to the National League that had been suspended, was still ongoing. The Liga Comarcal, the Copa España Libre, a parallel to the King's Cup, and finally, the Copa Catalunya. If there's anything you can take away from this, is that the sport represented something more than just the pastime. Players joined and fought for both the rebel cause and the Republican one. Teams were sent on international voyages to play matches as a way to collect funds for the war effort, and at the same time sway international media in favor of either cause. Soccer became a political tool for foreign diplomacy. In the case of Barcelona and Catalonia as a whole, representative teams were sent abroad to play exhibition matches. Those that did return were hailed as diplomats, as heroes serving the propagandistic side of the war. This was hitherto unseen in any war. While fascist Italy and Germany had used sport as a tool for military preparedness and for ideological dissemination, sport as alternative diplomacy was not something that was in the agenda of these regimes. In this episode, I will not fully go into detail in regards to the international homologation of Spanish soccer, but that is something we will further explore in our trip to Bilbao and San Sebastián. Yet, keep it in the back of your mind because this feature of Spanish soccer is a key component to understanding the regime's stance on the sport. I think right now might actually be a good place to break, so why don't you just take a seat over there and I'll go get us a bite to eat or something. Hey, here, they're patatas bravas. It's a typical tapa found here in Barcelona. They're, they're somewhat spicy, so, so do be careful, please. So, uh, right. Now, where was I? I think, I think we left off somewhere around 1938. During this time, the war was in full traction, and life in Barcelona, and well, Spain as a whole, was not easy. Barca, the club itself, was having a hard time staying afloat. 
Their president had been murdered at the beginning of the war. And on the 16th of March of 1938, a bomb destroyed Barcelona's office. Trophies, documentation, archives, books, and memories were now under soot and rubble. Before we delve into the fascist regime and their impact on the club, we should first clarify what Barcelona means for most people. There is a form of mirroring, an identity-reflecting component in the club. The original crest has the city's coat of arms and diseñera, the red and yellow stripes of the Catalonian flag. This is clearly a signal, a symbol of the union between the region, the city, its history, and the club itself. Whilst other clubs have opted for a more Spanish approach, and I use this term very loosely, this club has always welcomed foreigners with open arms. Many of the founding fathers of the club were not Spaniards. You can also see the sentiment present in the statutes of the club that reinforce the idea that Barca's purpose is to follow a tradition of loyalty and service to its members, citizens, and Catalonia. Many Catalans see the club as an institution that nourishes and exports Catalan culture and Catalanness, being Catalan. Whilst other teams in their inception, and some still do, have a no foreigner policy, Barcelona instead chooses to embrace that which is different, whilst at the same time reinforcing the regional identities it pays homage to. Do note, I'm not implying that these policies are better or worse than others, though. In Spain, notions of community, culture, and ideology are expressed through soccer. And this comes before any dictator or regime decided to use them for strictly political purposes. A perfect example of this conflicting expression can be seen right here in Barcelona. The biggest two teams are Barça and Español. And whilst this rivalry is not as big as the Barcelona-Real Madrid rivalry, it does show two distinct approaches to identity from teams belonging to the same city. Unlike Barça, Español was founded solely by Spaniards, something somewhat rare for most club inceptions. Their original name was Sociedad Española de Fútbol, openly recognizing their Spanishness rather than regional identity. Espanol also had a no-foreigners policy, though they don't have this policy nowadays. At this point in time, Barcelona had 19 foreigners in their squad. Finally, Espanol actually received official patronage from the Spanish crown, much like other teams in Spain. They're called Real Club Deportivo Español, the same way Madrid is called Real Madrid. This is not handed out for no reason. It requires subscribing to certain ideological maxims that Barcelona and other teams never sought. In essence, Espanol is the polar opposite of Barça in practically every domain of analysis. And whilst I would really like to talk about the Real Madrid-Barcelona rivalry right now, that could very well be a conversation on its own. We will further explore that on our trip to Madrid in the coming weeks. Now knowing the cultural heritage of Barça, what it represents for the city, and what football as a whole means to Spaniards, we can understand the complex and nuanced policies that emerged during the regime. The last game in Barcelona took place on January 8th, 1939, just 18 days before the city fell to nationalists. The regime itself can be described as a regime of dualities. Franco's regime was the longest standing fascist government in European history for a reason. It was not achieved by mistake. This is not me exulting, justifying, or giving credence to his actions, however. It would be reductionist to claim he was in power for so long out of pure bumbling luck. I describe this duality as nationalist regionalism, and whilst that may sound contradictory, much of Franco's government was precisely that. Contradictory. 
Any semblance or hint of pure regionalism was crushed, burnt, and savagely repressed. Castilian, or, well, Spanish for the layman, was the national and only language. Basque, Catalan, Galician was illegal. Tombstones were removed. Teaching these languages could well land someone in jail or, well, the grave. And naming your children in these languages was legally impossible. Football Club Barcelona had to change its name to Barcelona Football Club, which I know it might sound nonsensical, but the latter follows Spanish grammatical order, whilst the former follows English grammatical order. They weren't the only team that had to do this. Athletic de Bilbao became Atlético de Bilbao. Sporting de Gijón became Deportivo de Gijón. Any club with the Real prefix, such as Español or Real Madrid, had to lose the prefix and any iconography of crowns or royalty. In essence, any hint of the incorrect past was to be forgotten, discarded, and destroyed. Obviously, Barca had to change its official language to Spanish, and the crest of the club was changed to show Spanish colors rather than the señera, which had regionalist connotations. Those that were deemed to have belonged to problematic, degenerate, or secessionist groups were purged. Barca's directors and board members were now filled with phalangist ex-generals. But here's the thing. If Barca represented this Catalonianness, this regionalist identity, then why was it taken over rather than destroyed? This would have been the more logical approach, and it wouldn't have conflicted with the regime's modus operandi or way of doing things. And here's where that duality comes in. I already told you that anything not Spanish was, for all intents and purposes, illegal. Yet, if I were to buy you a ticket to a match, and, well, a time machine too, you would see regional flags in the stadium. You would listen to people speaking Catalan, Basque, or Galician. This was impossible in any other public space even your home, if you had particularly nosy neighbors who would report you to the authorities. How could these two conflicting ideas exist in the same world? Why would this be allowed to exist in this particular space when it could mean life or death outside the stadium? Let's return to the idea of soccer representing some sort of Spanish or regional identity. Because here's where things begin to get tricky. Franco's regime's take on this matter was quite a smart one, albeit incredibly depressing. In a sense, they managed to undermine regional identities by transforming them and framing them as being irreplaceably Spanish. In one fell swoop, this regime could undermine regionalism while at the same time presenting allowed regional expressions as being essential to nationhood or Spanishness. By conceiving of regions as cultural spaces completely subordinate to the nation, and at the same time brutally destroying separatist movements, Franco could introduce elements of nationalism and populism to these regions while still maintaining control. The point or the goal wasn't total eradication of regional identity. The multiple identities, combined with the emotional bonds with municipalities, regions, and the nation, were utilized with the intention to foment love for the nation at large, and football was used as a means to that end. Barcelona's victories were presented as Spanish and Catalan victories. Barcelona beat Athletic de Bilbao 4-3 in the final of the Copa del Generalísimo, the equivalent of the King's Cup. And yet, this was not presented as a failure for Spain. It was presented as Catalonia being the pride of Spanish soccer. The trophy was handed to the Barcelona captain by Franco himself, and there was no jeering or booing this time. Regional matches were also still allowed. In 1942, Catalonia beat Castilla 4-2, and that same day, Spain beat France 4-0. 
The newspaper, El Mundo Deportivo, described this day as, quote, a presage of a glorious epoch, a magnificent renaissance to come. Part of this duality can be understood from a sociological lens. Franco would permit certain elements that could potentially undermine his regime so far as they were harmless. The presence of regional identity in soccer stadiums is not so important if one considers them a part of banal nationalism. The presence of flags are ubiquitous in stadiums, whether they are Spanish flags, ycurriñas, estraleiras, or señeras. These deviant expressions could be tolerated in stadiums as the political weight behind them is undermined by their relative normalcy in these circumstances. The flag simply doesn't hold any ideological weight. At the same time, this dissidence could be expressed in a control environment rather than manifesting itself in a more dangerous or perilous situation, such as a strike or a revolt. The regime's use of soccer was twofold. It could serve as a way to keep potential dissidents in check and at the same time lull the masses. It has been said on several occasions that soccer is the bread of the Spanish people, the bread and the circus. Marx would probably describe it as the opiate of the masses and, well, to a certain extent, it is. Yet, how the regime used football was considerably more pernicious than that idea as we have explored. Franco would also use soccer as alternative diplomacy, as a way to whitewash the regime in the eyes of the world, but that is a story for another day. Let's focus on soccer and mass media. Soccer is perhaps Franco's best tool to keep the masses depoliticized. Social apathy and passive acceptance were the name of the game. The city of Barcelona had three daily newspapers just for soccer. Media began discussing international matchups up to two weeks in advance. Matches were disseminated through radio, reaching millions in bars, cafes, and homes. Lastly, the Nodos, notices and documentaries presented in cinemas, would include reports about the matches, further spreading the narrative of national identity and Francoist ideology. Football Club Barcelona had become a medium through which the regime could transmit nationalist and Francoist ideals, portraying Catalonia as integral to the Spanish nation and the concept of Spanishness. A perfect example of this is Camp Nou. Yeah, that huge stadium we first saw when we arrived. During its inauguration, a mass was held with 50,000 spectators, a parade of peñas or fan groups, and over 200 Catalan clubs were followed by regional dancers whilst the Spanish flag was being hoisted. Yet this duality also gave rise to precisely that which the Francoist government wanted to avoid, secessionist and anti-Franco sentiments. This was seen later in the regime, when it slightly put its foot off the pedal of repression. The processes of secularization and immigration of the 60s and 70s transformed Catalonia. A subculture of anti-Francoist sentiment began to rise gradually and clandestinely, extending from the private to the public sphere. By the end of the 60s, schools were already pushing for the use of Catalan in schools. Football clubs also played a role in this regard. Barcelona took more steps to Catalanize the club or to make more Catalan. The Barca magazine began introducing Catalan into its articles. Many club directors were directly associated with political Catalanism. Barcelona officially joined a campaign for the use of Catalan in schools in 1971. A year later, they were using Catalan through the PA system and had señeras in the stadium as well. By 1975, a few months before the death of Francisco Franco, they declared Catalan the official language of the club. Simply because there were anti-Francoist sentiments in the club, 
does not mean the club itself was anti-Spanish. For example, after winning the league for the 1974-1975 season, the club president exclaimed that Barca was the symbol of Catalonia and the best embassy of Spain for the outside world. That same year, the Barca magazine ran a special publication in celebration of the league trophy with photographs of fans with Catalan and Spanish flags. The club itself never disavowed the regime and were loyal until the dying breaths of Francisco Franco, even if it was in nominal fashion. Barcelona's history with the regime is complex, much like it would be for any other Spaniard at the time. It was used as a political tool during the war, after the war, and for both Francoist and anti-Francoist sentiments. It had its fair share of unfairness from the regime as well, as can be demonstrated by the Di Stefano case. A player Barcelona had the legal right to incorporate into the team, but ultimately ended up playing for Real Madrid after a rather underhanded move from Real Madrid and the Federation. Yet again, I would like to reiterate that the point of this show is to neither praise nor demonize this delicate and harrowing period of Spanish history. If anything, I want the message to be that football can transcend all that. And that, my friends, is it for today. This was Football Club Barcelona's history, before and during the regime. And on the next episode, we will be traveling to the Basque region to unearth Athletic de Bilbao's history. If you've made it this far, I would like to thank you for taking this ride with me. And if it isn't too much to ask, giving this podcast a five-star rating and sharing it with your friends. These episodes take a lot of research, reading, and time. And while I would like to produce them more often, I, I really have to be careful that I don't misrepresent or misinform anyone on the subject. Anyways, you've been listening to Undertime, the story of first division soccer in fascist Spain. <laughs>